All right. If Genesis was not in the Bible, think about this. If Genesis 3 was not in the Bible, Genesis 3 was not in the Bible, we really would have no Bible. Uh, because if you think with me, Genesis 3, of course, that is what is referred to as the fall, sin uh, of humanity that fell into sin, and that it, without Genesis 3 and that the purpose of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is one story. We have 66 books, uh, 39 in the old and 27 in the new, but there, while there is various stories and accounts, but there is a single thread of redemption that runs through Genesis to Revelation. And so Genesis chapter 3, which is, again, one of those pivotal uh, chapters that, again, without it, uh, there's, really no, there's really no Bible because the Word of God is uh, God's Word and God's redemptive purposes uh, of rescue of fallen sinful humanity. And so Genesis 3 is, uh, again, is just is pivotal. It's kind of been setting up with creation, chapter 1, chapter 2. <coughs> and we uh, come to <coughs> Adam and Eve in a perfect God-prepared environment. Everything, everything they needed, everything that they needed to not only to live, but everything they needed to fulfill God's purposes was provided for them in the garden. They were given a mandate by God to be fruitful and to multiply. Uh, they were, in essence, uh, co-regents, uh, governors, if you will, or uh, under the authority of God upon the earth. That was the setting. And so, as Sproul uh, introduced last week in chapter 3, that chapter 3... Uh, begins with this very uh, ominous uh, 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 scripture here, this word, where it says, Now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, remember we talked about those two names, had made. And he, this serpent, uh, said to the woman, Did God actually say. Now, Sproul spent some time on this last week. How many of you were here last week and saw that? And I hope that was helpful to you. Uh, we're not going to spend it all, a lot of time, but I've kind of got, what is it, seven different headings there, six or seven headings, because I want us to try to get mostly through Genesis chapter 3 tonight. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what Sproul dealt with last week, but I do want to kind of highlight a few things. Uh, we see in chapter 1 the, the introduction, if you will, of the enemy, the enemy of God that is introduced here, and it says the serpent. Well, uh, Genesis chapter 3, we know the serpent is Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, he's identified and called, in fact, in 20, Revelation 22, I believe, that he's referred to as both uh, the serpent uh, and the dragon. So we, again, we see this picture of Satan in some way embodying or speaking or, or taking into this figure of this uh, serpent 
and speaking. Now, again, it'd be interesting to go through all the, the what ifs and what about this, but there's just somewhat some things we don't know. But what I think is interesting is Eve didn't seem necessarily alarmed by a talking serpent, right? I mean, that, that kind of mystifies me. Now, I don't know it's because she didn't know. Adam didn't tell her, hey, if any of these animals start talking to you, run. I don't know if he told her. I don't know what the deal was, but she didn't seem overly uh, uh, concerned about that. Uh, we know that in, in uh, John 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies, uh, that when he speaks his language, he's speaking lies. Uh, and so uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we are not unfamiliar with the schemes of the devil, his strategies. And we see strategies and schemes here. And again, I know this was talked about a little bit last week, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time. So notice, secondly, the strategy. Satan disguised himself. You know, Satan does that, doesn't he? He disguises himself. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 11.14 that the enemy, Satan, can masquerade or disguise himself as an angel of what? Of light, which would imply that he can deceive or he can uh, masquerade himself as something that is good. Uh, cults do this. False religions do this. Uh, uh, anything that is meant to, to appear good, and that's exactly what he presented here to Eve in disguising himself when he said, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And so we know Satan still masquerades himself uh, as something that is good or helpful. And notice, and again, I know I'm repeating a little bit last week, but we notice what he does here is he questioned uh, the word of God. He said, Did God actually Say, did God actually say? Did He really say? And the tone, uh, Martin Luther in his commentary said, the tone is a mocking, jeering tone uh, that Satan says, Did God really, did He really say that? I mean, really. And again, part of his strategy is to question the Word of God, to scoff, to ridicule the Word of God. And we know that uh, Satan wanted Eve to discount or forget what God had specifically told them. Remember, he said, of every tree you shall eat, except of this one tree. Every tree, and that was the one tree that he said that God forbid uh, that they were to eat. Um, and so in verse 4... Well, let's just read through verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. She kind of added that in for what it's worth. God didn't say anything about touching it, uh, lest you die. But the serpent said, and again, totally contradicting God, is you shall not surely die. God said, if you eat of it, you will die. Satan says, oh, come on. Come on. You know, a little taste won't hurt you. A little, a little, you know, look, don't be, don't be so hung up. You know, don't, don't take this religion thing so seriously. Don't, 
you know, I mean, come on, we're free people, you know, right? We're liberated. We don't need the... No, he's always trying to denigrate and deny uh, the Word of God. Now, it's interesting, and I don't have this on the screen, so you'll have to look over in your Bibles, but look over in your Bibles while we're here to 1 John 2, 16 and 17. 1 John... I don't hear any pages turning, so maybe you're swiping. Bring your Bibles. This is, this is how you learn how to use the Bible by knowing where things are at. It's towards the, the back. If you go to the maps, you're too far. So Revelation, Jude, keep going, and you'll hit 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, something, again, I think is, is relevant here. 1 John 2, and uh, I'm going to begin reading at verse 15. Uh, John says, this is the Apostle John, he said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, he's not saying anything about loving nature and loving flowers. He's talking about the world godless systems. You with me? Right? Okay. Notice what he says, verse 16. For all that is in the world, he's talking about a spiritual aspect, for all that is in the world... The lust, notice these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of, or its origin is of the world. And the world is passing away, verse 17, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, think with me about this particular temptation with Eve. How do you see those three things that John says there, where he says, uh, let me go back and and find it. Uh, He says the, what was the the first one? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In in the garden, what was the, how would you, where's the lust of the eyes in the garden, in this temptation? It looked good. I'm trying to, uh, someone, yeah. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, okay? Um, and then uh, where do we see the, what was the next one? The lust of the, that was the lust of the flesh. It was good for food, satisfy the appetites. And then the lust of the eyes, okay? So it was uh, good for food, it was a delight to the eyes. And what was the pride of life? Where would you find that in that verse? What part of that verse? Yeah, and uh, with desire to make one wise. So you see, you see those that, you know, Satan doesn't have any real new strategies. He's kind of got a pattern there. Now, think with me. Go over to Matthew chapter 4. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. I don't want to belabor this, but I thought it was worth pointing out. Matthew chapter 4. Luke 4 has a companion, but I always think of Matthew's. Remember, this is uh, after the, in chapter 3 of Matthew, after Jesus' baptism, the, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, uh, the voice of the Father 
said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then it says that immediately after that, verse 17 in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, and Jesus was led by who? By the Spirit, that's Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I'm not going to go through all these, but think about, again, thinking about Eve here, thinking about this temptation, thinking about the pattern we see in 1 John 2, 16 and 17. So in, and I don't have it on the screen, but uh, you have it hopefully in your Bibles. But uh, what in that temptation, where do we see the lust of the flesh being tempted with Jesus in the wilderness? Yeah. If, 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 questioning, right? If you're the son of God, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, you know, I don't know if they had any of these here, but I remember there were, used to be this restaurant called Ryan's Steakhouse, and they had these yeast rolls. And you could just sit there and eat those until you had a cardiac arrest. I mean, they just were, you ever, you know, just something about, I remember, I remember something very distinctly when I was five years old, my kindergarten class took a tour of the Buttercrust Bread Factory in Corpus Christi, Texas. And by the time that we were through, I think I would have given my left foot for bread. I mean, because the smell, my grandmother had a house near there, and every time I went to her house, you could just smell that place making bread. It was wonderful. Now imagine, the, the, so the temptation there, if you're fasting for 40 days, I forget exactly where, what day it is, but your body is moving into starvation. And there's a point of starvation where your, your internal organs start to be consumed because of a lack of, uh, of food. So to say that Jesus was really hungry... He was really hungry. His humanity, he was hungry, all right? And so the lust of the flesh. Where do we see, and there may be a little backward here, but when the next temptation, Satan said, if you're really the son of God, why don't you jump off the pinnacle of the temple, assuming that's Herod's temple that he's referring to, and then as you, uh, because you know Satan can quote the Bible. Have you known that? He can quote the, he doesn't quote it accurately, but he can quote scripture. And he, and he said in the Bible, quoting one of the Psalms, that the angels will not let any of your, not let your feet, uh, in other words, the angels will protect you. And so the idea is, you know, Jesus, if you're really saying, why don't you just jump off the pinnacle of the temple and everybody will see who you are and the angels will capture you. And, and man, you can just short circuit this, this mission thing that you're on and just really take a shortcut here. What temptation would that might be? Yeah, I think so. Pride. People, you know, I mean, even these, you know, you could think the temptation through the mind. You know, even the disciples seem confused in who I am. Why don't I just show everybody once and for all who I really am? And, and there's something, again, about, you know, just the temptation of pride, of the building up. Now, we know Jesus was sinless, and, he, and because he was holy God... Uh, that he couldn't have sin, but that is not to minimize that he faced uh, genuine, real temptation. So we see the pride of life. And then the last one is, Jesus says, if you would just bow and worship me, and he took him up and he showed him what? He showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. 
right? And that is the beauty of the eyes. Look at all this wealth. Look at all this. Look at all this. It can all be yours. Just kind of, just give me a little nod. That's all you got to do, Jesus. Just give me a little nod. We can get, we can get on with business. He was tempting him. If you worship me, if you acknowledge, because see, that's what Satan wants. Think about it. What Satan, and again, there's other passages of Scripture, you can read this, but Satan is depicted in Scripture as a fallen angel. That means he's a created being. He's not Darth Vader against Luke Skywalker. It's not a, it's not a battle of equals, right? Satan is created by God. He exists for the sovereign purposes of God. Read Job, the beginning of Job. Um, and so what Satan wanted to do is, is the Bible tells us that, that he wanted to usurp and receive the glory and the attention and the, the worship, the picture of that he was one of the elite cherub angels that was designated for the worship in the heavens, but he developed, a, developed pride and he wanted to receive the glory that was to God and God alone for himself. In essence, he wanted to be what? He wanted to be... God. He wanted to have a coup d'etat attempt in the heavens. Well, what he failed to do there, I think maybe he thought he could pull it off down on earth with these creations, these created ones that he could usurp and receive that authority to some degree from them. But we see that Jesus was tempted, Eve was tempted in those Three different ways. And so Satan questioned the word of God. He denied the word of God. And then we see in number three of your outline, verses six through seven, is we see the, the tragedy. Eve was deceived. There was disobedience. She willfully, uh, with her eyes wide open, she, she sinned. She was deceived. I should say, yes, she was deceived, the Bible says. But Adam... But Adam, it says, then the eyes, let me go back here, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he, he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin claws. Now, the Bible tells us that in uh, 1 Timothy 2.14 that Eve was deceived. But think about it. Adam did it willfully. He did it voluntarily. Now, he goes through a little blame game in a minute, but there was disobedience. And the reason that's important, because when you see and read Romans 5.12, for example, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. It doesn't say through one woman and then a man or through one couple, but Adam, because Adam had a unique role as the as headship, if you will, as the uh, authority, the given authority that and because of his sin. Now we can speculate and think, well, what if Adam refused? What if he said, Eve, what in the world are you doing? You know, I mean, I mean, we can speculate all day long, but we just don't know, do we? We don't know. But he willfully, I mean, there's, a, there's arguments, but again, there are, your argument's as good as anybody's because you're, you're building doctrine in the white spaces there because it doesn't tell you. 
um, what could have happened, but there is a part of me that would like to speculate that if he had refused as the authority and sought God's forgiveness, that perhaps, you know, perhaps, just like Judas, could Judas have received forgiveness if he had gone to Jesus and, and repented? I think he could have. Didn't Peter do that? Didn't Peter receive forgiveness? But he chose not to do that. So Adam is the one that the Bible designates for, you know, in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 22, for in Adam all sin. Now let me just kind of go off a little bit here and kind of just uh, emphasize something that's really important in Scripture uh, there, in Scripture, the Adam, remember in Romans 5, that just as one man's sin, one man's obedience, Christ, uh, Jesus is sometimes referred to as the second Adam, right? And so the point being is, is that in Adam, uh, and some look at this, and I mentioned this a few weeks back, that here in the garden that Adam entered into, or God entered into with Adam, a sometimes what's called a covenant of works. There was a covenant, and it was not an unconditional covenant, but it was a conditional covenant, meaning you obey, you will live, you disobey, you will die, right? And there are other, the Sinai covenant with Moses and Mount Sinai. You obey the law, you will live, you disobey, you will die. Now, Abraham had an unconditional covenant, okay? But you see conditional covenants. Some see this, that there's a covenant of works there, in the garden, and because Adam represented the and stood in place, that in his um, uh, what do I want to say? Pro, is it progeny? Progeny? Progenity? I don't know. His ancestry. That's easier to say. Uh, in his lineage, in his line, in his seed, if you will, he stood there as the first of all human race of the human race. And so that when Adam sinned, that's what Romans five is getting at. With Paul, that with one man, with one who sinned, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. How? Because in Adam, because in Adam, we are all deemed and as guilty sinners before God. And so in theology, this is uh, sometimes referred to as federal headship. Adam was our federal head. Now, that's not really an unusual concept. It really isn't. Think about it. If, if President Biden signed a declaration of war against Canada tonight, it would be as if every single one of the people that he represents as the federal head of the government has declared war on Canada. You may not even know any Can Canadians, and you're just off into Niagara Falls and find out we're at war. And they don't care because you're, now you're an American, you're an enemy. Why? I didn't do it. Biden did it. Well, it doesn't matter. He is your federal head as the American president, and he represents all. You with me? So when Adam, when Adam fell, when Adam sinned, imagine a train. Adam, is the caboose at the front? The back. Engines at the front. I know that. I was just testing you. All right, so the engine's in the front. When that engine, with all the cars of humanity, when that engine went off the cliff, guess what? All the cars went with it. 
Now notice what they did here. In this, they're... You know, when it says... Well, I don't get into that. Um, and if they knew... And it, went, it wasn't just... You know, we, we don't have run running around without clothes... <laughs> It was that there was, their innocence was lost. Now, they have entered into experiential sin. God, remember when it says later in verse 24 or somewhere there in Genesis 3, when it talks about, or later in the chapter, and how they've become like us, it wasn't God, God doesn't have experiential sin. God on his omniscience, if I could say it this way, knows sin, but he doesn't know sin as a participant. You with me? Remember James says when you are tempted, don't say what? God is tempting me because God cannot be and does not use sin to tempt, all right? But man lost his innocence by his free choice, and he entered experientially, experientially uh, as a, into sin as a sinner. Okay? Um, and so they're both, their eyes were both open. And it says, look at what they did. And this is the shame. They had knowledge. Remember Satan promised them they'd be like God? Well, that was really a lie in one essence, because if you go back in your Bibles into Genesis chapter uh, uh, 2, where it says that God, in verse 27 of Genesis chapter chapter 1, I'm sorry, Genesis 1, that God created man, mankind, humanity, in his own image. So in one sense... Adam and Eve were already like God. You with me? They were already like God. They were image bearers of God. Now, they weren't gods, but they were like God. They were image bearers of God. And now they've entered into a new, unlike the uh, the lie that you would be like God, the the pride. And think about the argument here is that you know, when, when Satan was, was tempting Eve, you know, the argument's almost, and he does the same thing with us. You know, look, you're not going to die. I mean, look, God's holding out on you because he knows that the day you eat it, you're going to be like him. And he's just, he's just kind of a finicky, jealous deity. He didn't want anybody to have any rivalry. And I don't know if Satan says... And I know, I lost my job. Because I, and I don't know if he said all that. But the whole temptation, again, is what? Satan promised you can flourish and have freedom and autonomy without God. Isn't that what he's offering? You don't have to listen to him. You don't have to listen to him. You want to do this? You want to do that? You want to break all the commandments? You want to? You make your own list. You can have free. Isn't that what? Isn't that what Romans one pictures sinful humanity today? 
that even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They exchanged, exchanged, you know, I'm going to give you whatever, a pen for your pen. I started saying my shirt, but that wouldn't be good. Um, we'd, we'd lose everybody there. You'd be in horror. Um, they exchanged that which, they exchanged the creator for the creation. For the creature, the Bible says. Instead of worshiping the creator, they exchanged the truth for a lie. They exchanged the creator for the creature and began to worship images of the creation. You see, so Satan is making a false uh, offer here and a false claim. And with all of the input that if you do this, if you do this, you'll really, you really know what living is all about. And he does the same thing to us today. You don't really need to follow everything in the Bible. Come on, we know that there's a lot of contradictions. And who knows who wrote this or who did that. Doesn't he, isn't that the kind of way he works on us? And we have a great capacity, just like Eve... We have a great capacity to rationalize sin, don't we? Even if it means just, you know, we're not altering a lot, but we're just kind of bending the literalness of Scripture. You can't be, you can't take the Bible literally. Satan doesn't want you to take the Bible literally. He wants you to kind of just, he wants you just to freelance. You know, he wants you to have, he wants you to have that Debbie Boone theology. You don't know what the Debbie Boone theology is, do you? But I'm going to tell you, you do know it. Remember what Debbie Boone's famous song was? You light up my life. And the famous line in there, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? Right? Well, pastor, I just feel this is the will of God for my life. It doesn't matter if you're going, you know, it isn't a matter of buying a Ford or a, you know, an Audi. You're not talking about inconsequent. You're not talking about that. You're about when we, when we want to engage in sin, we have a way that we can entertain and listen to the enemy. And we will entertain and listen to rationalizations and thoughts. And when the day is done, we are just going to bend and do and reject what we know clearly is God's word. Because we always think... You know, that if I obey God, I should always feel wonderful and good. Sometimes obeying God's word is just hard. It, it, everything in you is screaming the opposite. Everything was screaming, but she said, but it looks so pretty. And I'm hungry. And Adam, where has he been? He's out traipsing around with the rhinos and the giraffes. And I'm hungry and... You know, there's people who want to make an argument that Adam shouldn't have left her by herself. I don't, you know, that's, that's getting into too deep for me. But notice in verse 8, they lost that innocence. And it says they heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim. Remember Yahweh Elohim? Yahweh, the covenantal name of God. And in Hebrew, Elohim, Lord God. By the way, when you see Satan... When he says, did God say? He doesn't use the name Yahweh. 
That invokes the covenantal presence, the name of God. He doesn't use that. He just uses Elohim. Something interesting. That's free. And it says that he's walking in the cool of the day. Now, there's a term that you may have heard called a theophany. How many of you know what that means? Theophany. You just mumbled, so it sounds like you sound so smart because people think you said something profound. But it, it, theo, theo means theology, right? The, theo, God. Uh, Ophany means I have no idea, but <laughs> but here's what a theophany is. It is a term used in those places in the Old Testament that appear to be pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem appearances of Jesus. The angel of the Lord before Joshua. Many consider that a theophany. In other words, what is Jesus? But God, God became in human flesh, right? And so there are, appear- when, when, again, we'll go through the example. It was maybe the fourth man in the, you know, with those three, uh, three uh, Hebrew guys. Um, so we don't know. But the Lord and man, humanity, are obviously in a, in a living arrangement that they heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden. But notice what this says here. And the man and his wife, what did they do? Hid themselves. Sin will always make you run for cover. That's why so many nightclubs and bars and places you shouldn't be are dark. Right? Nobody wants, everybody wants to hide. But what, how'd they hide? It says, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Because there was shame. Who told them they, you know, their eyes were open. This, again, Satan had presented, they were supposed to enter into this, this, this euphoric knowledge. But somehow it didn't work out that way. There, 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 there's, there's shame. They're, they're hiding. And he says in uh, verse 10, uh, when the Lord, uh, let me go back to verse 9, but the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, called to the man. Interesting. He didn't call to the man and the He called to the man. He called to Adam and said, where are you? Now, do you think the all-sovereign God can't find little Adam running around in the garden? But sometimes that's the question. He wasn't asking. God never asked questions for information. He's doing it to elicit confession. Where are you? Where are you? And he said, Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now remember, they tried to cover their shame by sowing fig leaves together. You know something I did not know? I probably should know this. Maybe you probably all know it. But the fig tree is the national tree of Israel. 
And look, remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree in Luke? Do a little study on the fig tree in Scripture. More than we have time to do here. But they hid themselves. Look in your Bibles. Turn over your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation chapter 6. Okay, don't say Revelations. It's kind of like saying 2 Corinthians. Uh, Revelation chapter 6. Did anybody get my, that was, that was a, some of you don't get that joke. All right. Revelation, look at this, mankind, humanity, again, because of sin, because of shame, because of guilt, has always been hiding from God. The Bible says that there are, in Romans 3, that there are none that seek after God. Adam wasn't seeking God, was he? He was doing the opposite. What was he doing? He was hiding. I don't know if he was hiding behind a little tree. I don't know what he was doing, but he was hiding. Maybe somebody said maybe they put the fig leaves on like camouflage so they'd blend in, you know? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think that was the message translation. I don't know. Um, but look at this hiding, and you see it pictured here in Revelation chapter 6. It just shows you humanity is not searching for God. In fact, They'll do everything in their power to hide from God. In Revelation chapter 6, in verse 15, and this talks about, the again, the, the, one of the six sealed judgments and, and the, the, the wrath of God that's being put upon the earth. Verse 15, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man did what? Hid themselves hid themselves. This is the judgment of God being poured upon the earth in the latter days. They hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. I've never seen a lamb have wrath. But that's not the point. Paul would tell those, those philosophers in Athens in Acts 17 that God has appointed this man that he has raised up who will exercise, talking about Christ, who will exercise judgment upon the earth. So hiding. Man is not looking after God. He's not searching after God. Oh, he wants relief of guilt and shame and all that. But it's God that is pictured in Scripture as the God who seeks. It's the God who is seeking. Adam and Eve are running from God. Some of you know uh, the name uh, old uh, uh, former pro baseball player, evangelist Billy Sunday. I found this quote interesting. Said that sinners... Evangelist Billy Sunday said that sinners can't find God for the same reason criminals can't find policemen. They aren't looking for them. Man, we think you know, everybody's looking, searching after God. No, they're searching for the benefits that only God can give. But man's nature, the last thing he wants is God. Because man does not want to, man is very happy and comfortable in his sinful rebellion, as Romans 1 again. And then in, we see also in this 
the speaking. We see, of course, we talked about that, and the Lord said, where are you? And again, he doesn't ask questions because he needs information. But it's interesting when he said, um, he said, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid. And they said, who told you, verse 11, that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? Again, he's not asking information. He knows. And the man said, I'm really sorry. <laughs> no. What does he do? He does what we do. Make excuses. Blame. Blame. The woman. The woman who you gave me. The woman whom you gave to be with me. It's her fault. It's her fault. I'm just a... I'm just, I was just an innocent bystander and I ate. I mean, but notice what he does. He, he blames, shift blames the woman, but he says, the woman whom you. So really, God. Right? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And what does she do? She shifts blame herself. That snake, how did he get in here? I told my husband to shut the door. You know, I mean, I don't know, but she, in other words, what is happening here instead of, and again, I'm, I'm speculating, but because God's character is one of mercy and grace, I just tend to lean in thinking that if they had repented and come clean, Maybe they're, you know, because again, God couldn't just, because later we see that he himself provided them the skins of animal tunics. So there was an animal that was, there was a blood sacrifice before they left the garden as a covering. But you see the blame that's all going on here. Look at the penalty, verse 14 through 19. It says this to the serpent. Yahweh Elohim said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Now some speculate that this being, this serpent, this animal, Satan embodying, um, was, was actually upright and that the idea of the snake or the serpent on your belly, that was part of the curse. I don't know. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I think it's interesting to point out that God never cursed Adam and Eve. He did not curse Adam and Eve, but he cursed the serpent. God's words to, in verse 15, verse 15, where he says, and this is really important. He says, I will put enmity, could be hatred, between you. Again, who is he talking to? He's talking to the serpent, Satan here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this 
my offspring, he shall bruise your head, or your version may say, and it literally is, crush your head. You shall bruise, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his feet, feet heel. And again, it may you think, well, that's kind of backwards. The point is, is that is, and your outline has the term there, I'll give you another $10 word there, proto-evangelium. It just means uh, pre Good news, if you will. Evangelium is the word that we get evangelism, evangelical, good news, pre or pro, um, proto-evangelium, pro, providence, pro means to look ahead, uh, means to see down, uh, to uh, see something uh, ahead of its time, if you will. So in other words, what is, what is the Lord doing here? That this is a, or the first what we would say prophecy of the promise of Messiah that would come. Look at the words again very carefully here. He says, I will put enmity, I'll put division between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The heel, again, speaking of the wound that the Lord is looking ahead of, of the one, the Messiah, that would come and be inflicted or afflicted by Satan, but it would not be the final death wound, if you could say. Now, we know Jesus died, but it would not be the final victory wound. The bruising of your heel okay, is significant. Well, in essence, you will strike him but it will not be an ultimate wound of victory. But he, this one that is being foretold, Messiah, who was to come, he will bruise or he will literally crush your head. And what Jesus is saying is that there is going to be a cosmic conflict from this point forward, and think of Scripture, between what Satan is doing that is energizing the intensity, the hatred against this seed line, this line that God is bringing forth, and ultimately the line that Jesus would fulfill. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this because I think this, is a, this may be an important part, but let me read you something uh, that is helpful here, and it may finish us out for the time being, and we may pick this up just to finish this up. Talking about Satan's hatred of Jesus, that, that the Lord says, I will put enmity, I'll put division. And really, we see this all throughout the rest of the scripture, right? We see that Satan has always, from that point forward, has always sought to do what? To destroy. In fact, we don't even have to get further beyond chapter 4 where we see Cain murdering godly, who? Abel. In fact, 1 John says Cain is of the wicked one. We see the conflict between Satan and the godly, not necessarily talking about uh, physical per se, but yet, meaning the godly line. And think about how Satan has sought to do this. Let me read you this from Donald Gray Barnhouse, an old 
man of God who wrote this. I thought it was worth, and it may wrap us up. When the Lord Jesus Christ was born, Satan's, Satan's hatred came to white heat. We can see the hatred of Satan at every point in the earthly story of the life of, the, of our Lord. Joseph was moved to cast off Mary because he knew that she had not been his wife as yet and drew the natural conclusion that there was sin on her part. But the Lord manifested himself and Joseph accepted Mary because of this divine revelation. The child of promise, the seed of the woman, the branch of David was born. The eternal word was made flesh. Satan moved Herod to kill all of the babies from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. But God had arranged escape in advance and had brought gifts of gold to the family of the young child so that a flight into Egypt was made possible. At 12 years of age, he was left behind in Jerusalem among the followers of Satan and the enemies of God. Remember Jesus even in John 8 tells the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil. The child was growing up before his father as a tender plant, Isaiah 53, and the heavenly care was about him. As soon as our Lord was publicly manifested, that's Matthew 3 and 4, 3 really, Satan immediately confronted him and sought in the three temptations to turn him aside from the path laid down for him in the councils with the father. When he had been routed with the sword, returned again and again, Satan left the Lord. Jesus said, it is written, it is written. But returned again and again, both personally and through the religious leaders, he could come to the hour of the cross. It was Satan who stirred up the people of Nazareth to take Christ to the brow of the hill and thrust him to his death on the occasion of his first public sermon. Remember when he... Quoted, opened that scripture and says, you know, read from the, the scripture in Isaiah, you know, that um, that just went out of my head there in the synagogue when he went back to his hometown. You know, uh, what's, the, what's the scripture? Spirit of the Lord, you know, is, and, and you read the end of that. They wanted to take him and literally kill him after that. He had announced, Jesus had announced the doctrine of salvation by grace apart from the Basis of the sovereign will of God, Luke 4, and the heart of man rebelled against it and turned easily to the enemy who would exalt the flesh. Man rebelled against it and turned easily to the enemy who would exalt the flesh. But he, Jesus, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Again and again, Satan played the old plot with different scenes and characters. Sometimes they picked up stones to stone him. They sent officers to arrest him. Their leaders attempted to incite the people against him. Always the nerve of their action was paralyzed. Their desire was that of their carnal mind, which is enmity or hatred or opposition against God. Now, for the first time in history, God was visibly before them as the object of their hatred. They were the sons of those who had killed the prophets. But they themselves would have killed their God. He described them fully in the parable of the tenants who killed the messengers. And when the owner, last of all, sent his son, remember the, in Matthew 21, that he finally sent his son and Jesus said, surely they will hear my son. This is the heir. 
In the parable, they said, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. That's from Matthew 21. A picture of the coming of the Son of God. Always Jesus escaped unhurt. He was master of every situation. He said, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. When human allies failed, Satan moved directly to kill the Son of God. On one occasion, the Lord's disciples were with him in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. They were lifelong fishermen who were in their home waters. They had thought that there was not a wave they could not be familiar, would be unfamiliar to them. But suddenly, a storm of such fury broke out that even these hardened mariners were chilled with fright. They rushed to the Lord as he lay asleep in the boat and roused him with their cry of anguish as they deemed themselves at the point of death. Master, save us or we'll perish. The gospel narrative states that the Lord arose at the call of the frightened disciples and rebuked the wind. Let the deniers of scripture realize that if Satan were not behind the power of the storm, then the action of Christ must be compared with that of a child who hurt by stumbling against a chair, begins to kick at the chair, crying out with petulance against it. But if we understand that Satan had raised that storm to kill the Lord Jesus, we see the whole pattern of these attacks and understand the force of the words addressed to that storm, peace be still. The verb in the Greek means to muzzle, and an ancient domestic life was sometimes addressed to a dog to silence him. Finally, The prophecies were fulfilled, and Satan bruised the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet had his own head crushed in the attack. So Satan has a long history. Think about as the Israelites were prospering in Egypt, the Bible says there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Even going back to what brought Moses on the scene, uh, that, what, that, that, that what was he doing? He was wanting to kill all the male children. Why? Satan has always been about seeking to destroy and put division and hatred in this. Now again, Satan knows the word, and I say that in quotes, but what Satan doesn't have is he doesn't have the Holy Spirit to give him understanding. You with me? He knows the data. He just can't put, he can't connect the dots. So sometimes he's just throwing everything up against the wall. And to the woman, he said, I will surely, I'm going to come back to that next week. So any final thoughts? Got a couple of minutes. We'll come back and talk about the final part of this here. But just quick, quick run through here. But this is, this is a big pivotal part in Scripture and lays, lays the pattern really throughout the entire, entire Bible. And so there are those under the guise of so-called evangelical scholars that are gutting out Genesis, the whole book of Genesis, but they're certainly spending a lot of time that, well, Adam and Eve, we can't take that literally. We can't take these events literally. And you see the consequence when you do that. You say, well, there wasn't literally a Adam and Eve. There was maybe an Adam and Eve that were representative, but there was a lot of people on the earth at that time. 
There wasn't just a single... In other words, that these things are, uh, are parabolic or they're, they're stories, they're, they're illustrations. We can't take any of these things literally. And so think about it that Jesus quoted the events of Genesis as if it was real history and real events. Jesus and Paul, when he talked about through one man, one man's sin, he quoted the events of Genesis 3 to bolster his doctrine of the justification and the work of Christ on the cross. So if these things are fables or not true, then certainly the man who we look to who was risen from the dead, he certainly understood these things as literal history. And so when you, if you want to gut the literalness of Genesis 3 and the events that take place there, then you really have a hard time. Then why did Jesus have to go to the cross to die for sin if there really was no entrance of sin? If, if all that is just the imaginations and fantasy and didn't happen then what's the cross all about? Just, well, he just wanted to show God's love. And it is a demonstration of God's love. But according to Romans chapter 3, 4 and 5, there's a, there was actually a transaction that was going on there. That God was just and holy, and yet God was the one who was the justifier of sinful Humanity. How did, was that possible? Why was there even a need to justify sinners if there really wasn't really any literal imputation? That's a big word. Imputation of sin upon humanity. You see, that's the whole argument Paul makes there in Romans 5 that through one man's actions in Genesis 3, sin infected the entire spiritual bloodstream, if you will. And notice that when the Lord says, through the seed of the woman, not the man, Jesus' father was not Joseph. Jesus had a divine origin. Mary speaking future of the woman. It was through the seed of the woman, but it wasn't through the father, the earthly father, one through the man. Of what God was going to do there. We will return maybe back to that and unpack that. We kind of, a lot more there we may talk about. All right? There's a quiz. There's a quiz tonight. Jaunty. Yeah. 